doctrine of the church. Hallelujah. So we're talking about the doctrine of the church. And, um, and so I, funny thing is, is that I, I've, I've learned that the church isn't always looked upon favorably in the world that we live in, especially in the region that we live in. I don't know if you are, have been living around this area for a long time, but we are living in what some would call the most like liberal state, whatever that means, but we're living in one of the most unchurched states in the United States of America as well. And you don't always know it until you travel to like other places and then you realize like, oh my gosh, you've been nurtured in an environment that like many people don't regard church as like a big deal. And so when you talk about the church and you, and you call people to prioritize the body of Christ and to love what Jesus loves, you realize some stuff comes up, some stuff, some baggage. You know, I don't want us to have baggage, I want us to have luggage because we're going somewhere. You understand? There's a big difference. And I think that... This is something that we've got to understand better and better because for me, fundamentally speaking, we have got to love what Jesus loves and Jesus loves the church. And it's important that we come from, we come from it, uh, to this issue from that angle. God loves the church and you might have had a bad experience. I've had horrible experiences in local churches, horrible experiences, humiliated difficulties, I mean, all of that stuff, but that, isn't, that doesn't, shouldn't bring shame to the name of Jesus, and it shouldn't define what God has for me in a local body or in the church that he's called me to be a part of. I, I just want to say that to you, like, right up front. We are called to love what Jesus loves, and as we listen to the doctrine of the church, as we study this together, we've got to start right there, that we love what Jesus uh, loves. And so I want to talk to you about the church tonight. Uh, historically, we call this, or theologically, we call this ecclesiology. Uh, sometimes you'll hear the word uh, church. The Greek word is ecclesia. Some people will say ecclesia. Uh, you can debate which way you say it, but we call it, ecclesiology is the study of the church. And in the Bible, there are many references to the people of God. There is the reference the body of Christ, the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the bride of Christ, the saints of God. Um, there's even some references to the army of the Lord. There's, there's all these references to the people of God being um, these illustrations or these metaphors. And yet among all those references, the most prevalent about who we are or this title, this name that the body of Christ or the people of God have are the church. In the New Testament, you see the word church mentioned 85 times. And it's a Greek word, um, ecclesia or ecclesia, that means, this is what it means, a congregation an assembly of people, a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into a public place or a town hall meeting. The word itself, outside of like a spiritual context, it was a Greek word that was used to call people out of their homes and into the public square for like a town hall meeting. And so in the same way, in a spiritual sense, that's what we are. The ecclesia of God, the church of God, are the people that are called out into the gathering of the Lord, the people of God together. And I want to say this to you, even though it's really cute to say, like, uh, because the, the people are the church, it's really cute to say, like, I'm the church, so I don't have to go to church because I'm not the church. Well, you as an individual are not the church. We are the church together. We are the church together, and you have to start there. It's not something you are as an individual. It's something that, you are as a, that we are as a people. So the church is not a building. It's not a social club. It's not a recreational center like the YMCA. It's not a denomination, although denominations can play a part in the church based on organization. I know that can be a dirty word. But the church is not just a meeting, but as the church we meet together. The church is not something you attend, it is something you belong to, which is actually a higher level. It's not something that we attend, it's something that we belong to, that we're a part of. And the church is not a person, but it's a people. So you can never individualize this thing. The church is not something we are without each other. The church is the people of God united together in the name of Je Jesus, carrying the mission of Jesus. That's what we are. That's who we are together. The church is the people of God united together in the name of Jesus, carrying the mission of Jesus. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about a few things as we unfold this. And the first is I want to talk to you about the beginning of the church or the origin of the church. I want to talk to you a little bit about the structure of the church and then following that, the mission of the church 
And from there, we want to talk a little bit about what we do when we gather together. Because the Bible clearly calls us, as the church of God, to be a people gathered together. Literally, the definition is a congregation, a people called out together to be one of another. And I would tell you like this, as you and I in Jesus have been reconciled to God as Father, he's our Father, we are sons and daughters. That's what the blood of Jesus purchased and paid for. At the same time, what God has done is reconciled you and I to one another. And I find that when we become Christians, we, super, we enjoy this relationship that we have with God now. He's our father, I'm his son, or, or you're his daughter, and, and we enjoy this. We talk about this, we magnify this. But what we've got to remember is he's also reconciled us to one another as brothers and sisters. And he calls us to love one another. In John chapter 13, I think it's verse 35, he says, They will know, the world will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. He didn't say, they will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for me. He didn't say that. He said, by the love that you have for one another. The manifestation of our love for one another tells the world that there is a God in heaven. It's incredible. And I think it's something that we, that we ignore in our culture, in our time. And there's a lot of messages that get sent out as though it's, it's popular or it's okay to do that. It's not okay to Jesus. It's not okay to Jesus. So we want to talk a little bit about... The, the beginning of the church, the origin. In the Old Testament, the people of God were the Jews or Israel, the nation that God chose, chose for his purposes. And I've gone over this before with you, if you can remember, where I talk about how God chose Israel as a people to preserve the messianic line, to bring forth the law, the temple, the priests, the covenants, and also preserve the messianic line so that when the Messiah who was Jewish, when he was born, he would then from that place preach a gospel that would include all people who would name the name of Jesus. And that was the purpose. God sets apart his people, his oldest friends, the Jews, calls them to walk this specific road and bring forth all of this, many things that were a shadow of what, what was to come, but specifically Jesus in time in history when Jesus would come so that all men and all women all ages, all stages might have an opportunity to come back into relationship with God through the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Israel still has a special place and promises with God, but the people of God today, because of Jesus, are referenced in the New Testament as the church, as the church of God. The first reference we have of the church in the New Testament is where Jesus actually reveals to his disciples who he is in the most clearest way. It's in Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 33, or starts in the later 20s. But I'm going to read to you the version in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And this is what it says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who, who do people say that I am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my father who is in heaven, the father revealed this to you. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That's the first reference of the church. Upon this rock, what rock? The rock, the revelation of who Jesus is. Peter just has a revelation. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, flesh and blood, your brothers, your friends, your mom, your dad, they didn't tell you this. It was my father in heaven who revealed this to you. And on that rock, that revelation, I will build my church and the gates of hell or the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And he talks about, I will build my church. Here's some things that he makes very clear about the church from this passage. He says, the church is built on and through the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. That's for certain. The second thing that he reveals from this passage is the church is led and built by the Lord Jesus. He said, I will build my church. That's not something that we do. Yes, we're involved in planting churches. Yes, we're involved in encouraging one another. Yes, we're involved in everything from outreach to services to international missions. All of that we're involved in. But Jesus said, I will build my church. And it's, it's something that we need, to, we need to make sure that we have locked in. And the third thing I think he says from this passage about the church is the church carries the authority of Jesus Christ. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
And what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He gives them authority. Keys are, are the ability to access something that previously wasn't accessible. They open doors. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And what you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. I'm giving you my authority on the earth. And he's preparing them to be an authoritative people in the name of Jesus. And it's clear from his commission. And so what God calls us to do as his people, we need to understand we've got authority to do. I'll put it to you like this. I'm an author. I'm ri- I've written books. I'm writing books, r- written materials. People ask me, can I use your materials? I, as the author, I authorize them to use my materials for a specific purpose. I have the ability, I have the authority to authorize other people to use what is mine? Jesus has authorized us with his power to fulfill his mission. Whatever the scriptures call us to, he'll back it up as long as we set our hand to it. That's why he says, I've given you the keys of the kingdom. We don't want to sit around with keys in our hand, not doing anything with them. And there's a revelation that we need that he's given us something. And we look further into what the church is or the origin of the church. We see that the birth of the church takes place on the day of Pentecost. Jesus walks with his disciples for approximately three and a half years. And we know that he goes to the cross. He dies. He rises again. He has some conversations with his disciples and some others. And in Acts chapter 1, he starts to prepare them. They actually have this question. I think it's in verse 6 where they said, when are you going to come into your kingdom? And he says, no one knows the day or the hour of which my father has prepared. No one knows. And so he's trying to tell them that the kingdom is not going to come the way that they thought it was, but they're actually going to take the kingdom message, the death, burial, resurrection, and invite all people into this relationship with God. He's trying to help them still even at this point. And he tells them in Acts chapter 1, go into Jerusalem and wait for the promise that I said I would give to you, which is the Holy Spirit being poured out. Go into Jerusalem and wait. And in Acts chapter 2, that's what, they, that's what they are doing. They're actually obeying Jesus. He told them to go in Jerusalem. That's where, they, that's where they're waiting. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. In other words, I'm going to give you what you need to accomplish what I called you to. Yet they have the authority, but they need the power to do that, and that is in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so this is the birth. This is the day the church was in fact birthed. In Acts chapter 2 verse 1 is what it says, that in the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, according to what Jesus had told them. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. This just means other languages. They begin to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking or why are not all are all these speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Pergia and Pamphylia and some of those names I can't pronounce, Egypt and the districts of Libya and Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. In other words, not just Jews, but there were many others there. Cretans and Arabs, and we hear them in our own languages speaking of the mighty deeds of God through the person of Jesus Christ. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were still mocking, saying that they were full of sweet wine. And this is a powerful moment when the Holy Spirit was poured out. We know hundreds and hundreds of years prior to this, it was prophesied that this moment would actually happen. And some simple points that we find from the day which the church was birthed is the church is comprised of all genders, generations, and nations who call on the name of the Lord Jesus. Up until this point, that was not the case. The people of God were the Jews. It was Israel. Now, he says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All means genders, generations, and nations. Everyone. We also know that the tongues mentioned were prophetic and that Jesus was proclaimed, being proclaimed to all people. In Genesis chapter 6, 
you find this really strange moment where the people were united. They all spoke one language. They were building what was called the Tower of Babel. And the Bible says that God frustrated them by dividing them their, their languages. He gave them a division of tongues. And so they all spoke with different languages and they couldn't be unified together. And this to me in Acts chapter 2 is prophetic in that God wanted to bring his people together in his name. And there are differences between tongues. I don't have time to go into this, but there's a difference between a private prayer language and a prophetic tongue that needs interpretation. This is more like a missionary gift where people would receive tongues or, or language, not spiritual language, like heavenly language, but they would receive another known earthly language for the purpose of a missionary gift that Jesus could be communicated. You know, there are two different kinds of tongues. There just are. And it's important that we understand that. There's 1 Corinthians, I've gone over this many times before. 1 Corinthians 14 talks about the private prayer language where we would call it an angelic tongue. That's where Paul said, though I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am nothing. That's 1 Corinthians 13.1. And so we know that there's two different kinds. And in this specifically, they are proclaiming the goodness of God through the person of Jesus in 13 different languages. God is proclaiming over all nations that in Jesus, he wants to bring people back together. Peter, Peter preaches a sermon to explain what is happening. And as the sermon goes on, we know that 3,000 people come to Christ that day and are baptized. So powerful. 3,000 people. Some people would say or some preachers have said that one sermon led 3,000 people to Christ. And in, the, in our day, sometimes it's 3,000 sermons for one person to come to Christ. We, we certainly want those results back and we need them, amen. I want that. I've really asked the Lord for that kind of anointing. I, 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 don't, I don't care to be known, but if you pray a prayer to be used by God, pray it for the sake of salvation. Pray it that when you speak, there's an anointing on your words, not because you're so eloquent, not because you're so smart, not because you studied so long, but there's an anointing of God on your words that people just can't help themselves but want to come to Christ. I want people to literally ask me, what must I do to be saved? I want that to happen because I want people to come to Christ and I don't want it to be because my life was so perfect or my message was so amazing or so eloquent, but because the anointing of God rests on people as we speak the simple gospel message. In Acts chapter 2, the story continues about the church being birthed and it says this about the early days of when they were gathering together. There's thousands of them at this point. In verse 42 in Acts chapter 2, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. I mean, I think it'd be nice if our households just had all things in common. That'd be pretty amazing. And they began selling their property and possessions and they were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And listen to this. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. I'd like to be a part of that church. We're seeking to be like that church. Maybe in the 21st century it looks different, but certainly the principles and the power of what they experienced in those days can truly be enjoyed today. Here's some things that we see happening in the early church that we can't overlook from this passage. They were a devoted people. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were a devoted people, and they were devoted to what we now have as the word of God. The apostles' teaching in those days is now the New Testament for us today. So they were devoted to God's word. They learned, they loved, and they lived the word of God they did life together and they built relationships. It says they, they broke bread and they were in house to house. The there's a word, a Greek word called koinonia. I, I probably haven't said that right. But it talks about fellowship, sharing together, participating in the lives of one another. You know, that is the church. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not something we attend. This is, this is something that we've got to get back to, the root system of what we actually are together and being reconciled by God to him and to one another is that we share life together. And outside of sharing life together, we're not going to fully experience what it is that Jesus paid for in this thing called the church. They shared life together. They built relationships. They broke bread. They had enough time to eat meals together. They took communion and they prayed together. 
They celebrated, they were reminded of the Lord's death and, of course, of his resurrection as they prayed. They experienced the supernatural power of God. Did you read how it said there were many, they were awed by the many signs and wonders that were taking place? Supernatural power of God was happening. They met together regularly, house to house, it says. And in some cases, it says daily. Maybe that's not feasible for us these days, but... I think that what you can learn from some of this is simply that we shouldn't be the kind of people that, that are burdened by being together with God's people, but we are blessed by it. You can see that it was something, there was a richness about it. It wasn't just tradition, it was that they wanted this. They wanted to participate in the gathering together of God's people because it wasn't something that they could do at bedside fellowship. You understand? It wasn't something they could do at home. You know, they had to be with God's people wherever it was that they were in their location. It was important. And, they, and as a result of being the kind of people that they were, they multiplied in number. And I think, principally speaking, if this is what we're experiencing more and more in an increasing way, I think people are going to look at that and say, I want to be a part of that. I think there's an attractiveness that you and I don't have to manufacture when we're truly living that authentic life that Jesus offers us in the gospel. I think there's something potent and powerful about that kind of life. And I'm not saying we need to look like the book of Acts because we live in the 21st century, but principally, from the very root system from which we were born as God's people today, there are things that we need to extract and get back to in principle. It'll look differently, it might feel differently in some respects, but there are things there. I want people to be added to our number day by day. We are the biggest inclusion group on the planet. Everybody can be a part. You don't have to pay any money. You just come to know God. You give your life to the one that created you. You turn from a life of death, hell, sin, and destruction, and you turn towards Jesus, and everything that he wants for you to have, you can have. It's what we, it's what we were made for. People say, oh, there's such a cost in coming to Christ. I'm like, really? Such a cost to come to Christ? Oh, here you go, Jesus. Here's, here's death and here's hell and here's all sin and all the brokenness that comes with all of my sin and all of my relationships. And you're just going to give me life and you're going to bless me and I'm going to have forgiveness and joy and peace. It doesn't really sound like a lot of cost to me. But the lie, it guards what really is happening in the, in the divine exchange of God. And that's why when preachers preach on repentance, they better not be harsh with people because the truth is, is that the divine exchange bankrupted heaven, cost God everything so that we could simply come and receive. And if people could preach it, if they could preach it in the right way, I think people would want it. The good news speaks for itself. You don't have to beat people over the head. We're not doing God a favor by receiving Jesus. We are doing ourselves a favor, amen. amen. And when you live in that joy and you abound in that peace, it just flows out of you. People want what you have. And I would say it like this, as the church, people want what we have. And friends, we've got to get it together. We've got to get it together and love one another. All right, sounds like a song. <laughs> we've got to get it together and love one But we do, we've got to get it together. The doctrine of the church is the doctrine of God's people experiencing what Jesus paid for. That it is actually possible to not just be restored to a relationship with God where nobody else knows what's going on because it's private and personal. But it manifests in everything that we are and everything that we do as his people together. Because we love one another and we forgive one another. What we have received from him, we give it to one another and it's regular, it's ongoing, and it's offered for free. People want to be a part of that. People want to know there's forgiveness because they know what it's like to be a part of a family where people don't forgive one another. They know what it's like to be a part of a family where they're labeled and they're always the person that they were and they can't grow beyond that. They want to know that there's actually a group of people out there that will accept them and allow them to grow and be a part of this transformation that Jesus says we're all a part of. That's good news. And we're not just holding on and waiting for heaven because we hate the church. We get to be a part of something that's transformative. It's amazing. It's what God has called us to. It's what we are as the people of God. This was the beginning of the church. I want to talk to you a little bit about the structure of the church, if I can, for a few moments. And I will. 
the church grew and there was a need for structure. There was a need for organization. And before I share some of these things, I think it's important to break down a few concepts. And the first, I want to say this to you. There's some things you need to know. There's a difference between the universal church and the local church. There's the universal church. We want to talk about structure. Universal church is Christians everywhere. This is the church from God's perspective. God knows all people that are his. Whoever have, gi- whoever have given their hearts to Jesus, he knows who they are. Past, present, future, he knows who they, who they are. This is The universal church is the church from God's perspective. All people of all time who've said yes to Jesus. There's also the local church. This is comprised of believers who gather together in, in a specific location as a family. And I would tell you this, the Bible's extremely clear. It's so clear. Paul writes letters to, to cities, to this city and to that city. And actually, Revelation begins with Jesus writing letters to seven churches. Seven. <laughs> I almost did that wrong. I almost went like this or like this. Seven. Uh, anyway, so seven churches. I can't count with my fingers. Don't do it. He wrote letters to seven different churches and have a, had a message for each one of them. They were churches in a specific location, a place, a people, in a city. And as life has gone on and time and history passes by, the population grows and the need for organization is simply there. It's just the way it is. So we from that place have grown into denominations and so on. Without getting into that, I'm just saying there's a universal church, which is all people that are part of the church of all time, the church from God's perspective. The local church is comprised of believers in a specific location. This is Mill Creek Foursquare. Not all of you are part of this church but that's a local church. That's what we are together. We, have, we are a people that have chosen to come together. We are a people that have chosen to come together. And we're all part of the church in this room, even though we're part of different local churches. We are all the church together. There's also the invisible church. This is what I would call also the church from God's perspective. It's, it's similar to the universal church, but it's, it's what we can't see. And then there's the visible church, what we can see. And that's those that we see today that we walk with, those that are present today. Now, when speaking of structure or speaking of the structure of the church, um, I want to go over the officers, the ministers, and the leaders. And I'm, I'm not going to do this in great detail, but I'm going to do this in a way where hopefully it'll make a little bit of sense. Now, the first I want to tell you when it comes to structure, as the church grew, there was a need for structure in the church, order. And so people were appointed with roles and responsibilities. And the first role and responsibility is Jesus is the head of the church, number one. Uh, and you have scriptures on your notes. First Peter chapter 5, verse 4 calls Jesus the chief shepherd which means that Jesus is the senior pastor of every church. I realize that we use that title, but truthfully, a lead pastor would be fine because a lead pastor among others, but Jesus is the chief shepherd. He is the senior pastor of every church, period. That's what 1 Peter chapter 5 says. He is the chief shepherd. Ephesians 4.15 calls Jesus the head of the body of Christ. So it means he's in charge and all of us are under him, everyone. Leaders, pastors, bishops, deacons, apostles, whoever, everyone is under Jesus ultimately. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1 calls Jesus the apostle. He's not an apostle, he's the apostle sent from heaven to earth. He's the missionary sent from heaven to earth. It's important to know that when the Bible references an apostle, it says an apostle of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Jesus is the apostle. Everyone else is an apostle of Jesus Christ if that's their title. So Jesus is the head of the church. Second, we have what's called five-fold leaders. I've gone over this in our spiritual gifts class. Ephesians chapter 4 says that there are functional governing leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, or pastor teachers, depending on how you read it. But there are a five-fold gifting. He has gifted men to be gifts to men, or gifted people, men and women. He has gifted people to be gifts to people. That's in the church. And you're not going to, if you're not a part of a local church, you're not going to experience the fullness of what that even means. And I wish I could get more into that. You'd have to go back to our classes prior to this. But this is very important that we understand. There's also other officers. And what we would see from Scripture is elders. And on your page, you're going to see elders, pastors, bishops, and overseers. Now let me just say, the term elder was borrowed from Israel and the synagogue. It's used 30 times in the New Testament The Hebrew word for elder actually referred to an older man. That's what it meant in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in spiritual terms, it refers to a mature man who is established in a local church to lead, teach, and oversee. Now, I want to say to you that there's teaching out there 
that separates the idea of an elder, a pastor, a bishop, and an overseer. In my study and in my experience, and I've read other opinions on this, I don't find this to be true. Actually, the word bishop and overseer are from the same root word anyways. It's pretty much the same word. And the word elder is synonymous with pastors because when elders are appointed, they're also called pastors in the New Testament. So if I went over all the scriptures, I could show you these are all essentially the same thing. And to try to split hairs over these being different offices is actually a wrong thing to do. Some people say that bishops are like overseers over a region. That's current structure. The Catholic Church took some of these terms and they made them something that they weren't actually meant to be. And so what we, what we have done, Protestants are... We went through the Reformation, which means we were reformed off of Catholicism. And we've actually been reforming ever since. But we still carry some residual from the structure that the Catholic Church set up. And that's not what we're talking about tonight, but it's important for you to know when there's teaching that there's a bishop and that person is like an overseer over overseers. That's actually not what the scripture says. There's not a passage that says that. It's what people have done to kind of split hairs on words. But when you go back to the root words, they pretty much mean the, the same thing. That's why when you look at, for example, qualifications of an elder, it's the same qualifications of an overseer. It's the same exact thing. When you look at qualifications for a bishop, it's actually all put together in the same passage because they mean the same thing. Acts chapter 14, verse 32, Paul appointed elders for local churches, and that's what they are. They're, they're mature people that are set to oversee among God's people, elders, pastors, bishops, overseers. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says that elders rule, who ruled well were worthy of double honor. And this actually means financial provision. If you've ever had a problem with a pastor receiving a paycheck off of the tithes and the donations that come in, it's actually very scriptural. There's a passage that says, don't muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, which essentially means when there's effective leadership, you want to make sure that you add to that person in order for them to do what God's called them to do because they are meant to be a blessing to the rest of us. Now, I'm not saying everybody should be paid, but the Bible specifically says, Doubly honor those who preach and teach among you and those who rule well. It says that specifically. And it's amazing how in our generation, we don't actually look at that as a good investment. I want to say something to you about just the financial provision part because it's important for you to know. I know if you're new to me, you think, man, he's talked a lot about money tonight. He just came on that night. I, I really don't talk about money ever. That's why many of you are repeat customers or whatever because I don't do that. But it's important to know that in our day and age, we give to causes rather than people. And I want to tell you that's actually not true. Every time you give a dollar to an organization, you are putting your, hands in, you're putting your money into the hands of a person. You realize that. It's either a trustworthy person or a non-trustworthy person. I don't want to put together all these slick videos to compel people emotionally to give. I want people to give by faith because they believe in the people that God has raised up in front of them so that whatever they put in their hands, they know that it will be multiplied to the glory of God because that is the truth. When you go to invest your money into a stock portfolio, you had better know that you can trust the person giving you that advice. It's not even really that you're putting money into that investment. You're putting your money into that person who tells you that investment is worth your money. You with me? And so I, it's funny how we come up with ways to try to compel people to give. We just should go back to the Bible because the Bible says, doubly honor those who preach and teach among you. And then it goes on to say, those who rule well those who are credible, those who God is raising up, invest into those people. It's like putting a fuel on the fire. Do that and do that by faith and do it generously. That's where I'm at. I'm not asking you to give me money. I'm saying I'm with all of us in that when I see something that God is doing in people, I want to give to that. I know that God will is trusting that person, and as I come to understand what they're doing in the kingdom, I can as well. And so it's important that we, I stopped for a moment and just told you my thoughts on that because I just think it's one of those sticky issues in the church, and I don't know why. I have no, I have no, I have no idea why. Um, we give to so many things. I, I used to tell, uh, whenever I've received offerings in youth conferences, I'm like, hey, you guys can buy $70 video games and spend your money on total insignificance, and you can't put $5 into the kingdom of God. I'm telling you, change your priorities and watch heaven shake hell on the earth. 
telling you. It's not about money, but if we really want revival and we really want to see God move in and among our communities, we can't ask everybody uh, to just do it all for free. There's some things that we got to get moving. There's some things that we've got to do, and uh, I would put my money behind that myself. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 talks about the qualifications of an elder, and this is what it says. It says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. So it's a good thing to want that. An overseer then must be above reproach, which means he doesn't have all of these stigmas out there in the community. All right? He doesn't have like a, a duplicity. That he's known one way in the church and he's known another way in his neighborhood. You understand? He's not known one way in the church, honest in the church, but dishonest in some job that he might have outside of the church. He's above reproach. There are people that get accusations. I've had accusations, but apart from the accusations, it's above, this person is above reproach. They're not true is the point, okay? They're above reproach. The husband of one wife, and this is interpreted a couple different ways, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not, not, they don't have to be the best teacher, but they have to be able to teach. Not addicted to wine. I mean, to have a glass of wine or a beer is one thing, but to be a person that is loose or frivolous in alcohol, that's a problem. The Bible says it's a problem. It's very clear. And so none of us want to be that way, but elders cannot be that way. You can't lead the body of Christ if you're drinking too much alcohol. Just not possible. Uh, not, uh, or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. Some people haven't read that part. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Oh, man. So a person, if you don't know, if their household is a mess, that is uh, exactly what they're going to be in their leadership among others. That's how it's going to be. Not a new convert, so they can't be new to the Lord. And so that we will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. You know, what my interpretation of that is, is that gifting is not enough. There are many who are young, who are gifted, but if they're not seasoned in the Lord and they haven't weathered the storms, they haven't had the enemy come against them and known how to overcome, they haven't been able to overcome some of the sins, the youthful lusts in their own life, if they haven't been able to do that, gifting will not be enough. There are a lot of people out there that are gifted at a lot of things, whether it's prophecy or teaching or ministry. It is not enough. It won't last. It's a flash in the pan, and we can't be people that advocate that. We can't be people that um, are, oh, you're so amazing, and God's going to raise you up to do great great things. It's fine to encourage people, but like, don't let them get it, don't let it get to their head, you understand? I mean, I, I've watched a lot of people come and a lot of people go. I remember when they used to, I mean, I'd go to the, uh, I'd go to speak somewhere and they people say, how old are you? And I'd tell them and they say, oh, you're just a baby. And I remember being kind of offended by that because I'm like, well, I mean, I have my own business and got a bunch of kids and married for a while. And I, 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 mean, I think of a baby with diapers and a bottle, but I don't really know why you would call me a baby. That's kind of a really weird metaphor. You would use, I mean, I don't, I don't, I haven't looked at myself in the mirror. I've got facial hair. I'm not really sure what your definition of a baby is, but that's, I didn't think that's what I was, but you guys following where I'm going here? So it's probably a bad idea to call somebody a baby unless they're close to a baby. But, but I remember when I was young enough where people are always saying that to me, like, oh, you're too young. And nobody would come in for like marriage counseling to see me because what could this whippersnapper know? And, uh. And I respect that. I totally get that. Uh, I don't know actually where you cross the line. Maybe it's 40. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't quite hit that yet. But, but at some point, you, you cross the line where people, or your voice becomes more respectable. You know? I, and for me, I, I, in some cases, I've crossed that line where people of all ages respect what I have to say. And I appreciate that. Um, and, I, and I respect elders and I respect, I, I love the young. But I know that the young haven't yet walked through what they need to. And uh, I, my interpretation is that gifting is not enough. And that's what this passage would say when it comes to the qualifications of elders. You can't be having certain people at certain levels be uh, overseeing uh, the church of God because they're not going to be able to. Um, when the enemy comes, he'll, he might take them out. And so we've got to be aware of that. So there are qualifications of elders, overseers, pastors, and bishops. There's a second part of the structure that we see from Scripture, and that's deacons and deaconesses. Of the two clear offices in the New Testament, we see elders and we see deacons or deaconesses. Females are actually mentioned. There are not females mentioned when it comes to elders and bishops. They're just not. People debate that as to whether or not women can be 
elders. I know some of you have that question for me already. Some churches say it's okay. Some churches say it's not okay. Um, you get to study the scriptures out for yourself on that one because I know it's the question is coming when I come to questions and answers time. So we'll just get there. But deacons are mentioned directly in two passages. Uh, we read also of ministers. So again, like some church documents will say bishops, overseers, elders, deacons and deaconesses, and ministers. The word deacon means servant. The word ministers means servant. Same thing. All right, you guys with me? Sometimes the Bible will translate a word, and it's actually the same thing. So a minister and a deacon or a deaconess is the same thing when you read those words. You'll see that in different passages. But directly the word deacon is mentioned in Philippians chapter 1. The office is mentioned there. And 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8, which actually gives standards of life for deacons similar to elders. Now the point of this is, is this. God has put some in the church as functional leadership to equip the body of Christ. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. He's given some as what, I can, what I'm calling functional leadership, ministry leadership. He's giving some as positional leadership. And this is where they're actually caring for, they take care of the church. They oversee the people of God. They actually take responsibility for the spiritual well-being of people. It's not about control, it's about servant leadership. These are elders, these are pastors, these are bishops, these are overseers. Those are also positional leaders that God has put and established in the church. That's very biblical. And the next is deacons. And deacons aren't the same as overseers, but they actually serve the vision of the house. And they are the trusted people, men and women, that function within leadership, that second tier of leadership. They function there, and they're very, very trusted. These are the people that you could give them anything, and they could be in charge of anything in the church because they're the most trusted among us. In other words, all of the congregation would basically say, these are the most trusted people among us. And everybody would say to that, amen. Those are established deacons and deaconesses. So the, maybe this is boring to you, but it's important that we get down the structure of the church and make it as simple as possible, which is what I'm trying to do. Now, two more things real quickly. The, the next is the mission of the church. The mission of the church has been given by the Lord Jesus himself. We call it the Great Commission. It's to see the lost saved, and it's to see the saved discipled. It's really that simple. Mark 16, Jesus says, Go into all the world and preach to all creation. Those who believe and are baptized shall be saved. He goes on to say, Those who have disbelieved shall be condemned. Matthew 28 says, uh, All authority has been given to me, Jesus speaking. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe, which means obey, all that I commanded you. And I am with you until the end of the age. So Jesus has preached the gospel to everyone, genders, generations, and nations. That's something that we do. By the way, by the way, we've got to stay with the Bible on this because many people say, I'm just going to live the gospel with words and then, or, or live the gospel with my life and then when necessary, you know, I'll share with words. I think that was Ignatius or someone, some saint of old that said that. Jesus didn't say it. Jesus said, preach the gospel. It's always necessary to use words, always. L ladies and gentlemen, uh, you do need to live a good life, but the gospel is not your life. The gospel is a message that needs to be spoken to other people. That's what, preach the gospel to all creation. I don't know why we get so far away from the Bible with these quotes that we think are cute or nice or they sound good or whatever. I don't know why we do that, but it's not the Bible. I just, I feel like we just need to go to the Bible and everything will be okay. Everything will happen if we just stick with the Bible. But to adopt a theology or to adopt an idea that says we don't preach the gospel is false. It's falsehood. How people, uh, Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 10, how will they be saved if the preachers aren't set, sent and the message isn't shared? How will they be saved if they don't hear? They need to hear. And can I say along with that also that your life is not perfect enough to save anybody and it never will be. Can I tell you that right up front? And, and don't look me in the face and tell me that it is because it's not true. You know it's not true. On your best day, you still make some mistakes and you still sin. I've walked with enough people, the best among us still got some really messed up stuff going on sometimes. You don't want it to be true. You just don't. You want the airbrushed person to be that person that you aspire to be. Jesus is the only one we aspire to be like. He's the only one. 
and we're all in a transformation process to be more and more like him. But the gospel is not a life, a perfect life that you and I live. Yes, we live in transformation. We live in repentance from glory to glory. And all that's important. We need to know that. But your life isn't perfect enough to save people. So when people tell me that or I hear someone quote like, I'm just going to live the gospel and when necessary use words. I'm like, what are you talking about? And where does the Bible say that? It says, let your light so shine among men that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus said that. So, of course, it's important to live a life that looks like Jesus. It's important to live a life that brings glory to God because somebody sees your life and says, that's amazing. There must be a God in heaven. That's important. Yeah, of course, we want to live in a way where it might draw people to want to know what we know and have what we have. I agree with that. I'm not saying that's not important. But I'm saying, ultimately... I can meet person one time and share the gospel with them, and it might be that day and that moment. They know nothing about Ben Dixon. They don't know, have a clue about my life. They have no idea how I treat my kids and wife. They have no idea what I do behind closed doors. But the message is powerful enough for that person to say yes and be eternally set free and be with God forever. Don't you agree with that? I do. Half the people that ever shared the gospel with me, I never knew what their life was like. I didn't have a clue, and I never went home with them to figure it out. I didn't have a clipboard. I wonder how they live at home. (laughs) How often they are on the internet and do they, you know, what do they spend their money on and their time? I never did that. Because there was this power that was touching my life from this message of a resurrected man that was bigger than all of that. And I would tell you as those who are of the church, the part of the church, if you've been wounded by people that say they're Christians, if you've been wounded by a place, a people, if you've been wounded by, Jesus' forgiveness is bigger than that. His message is still enough for you and I that are saved. I've got sympathy for people that go through hard times. I do. I've got sympathy for you. If you've been wounded, I get it. But you're not the victim. You're the victor. You're not one that needs to sit down. You're one that needs to stand up. And nobody, nobody, nobody deserves the right to put you on the pew. Nobody. You are called to be in the game. You and I are called to do great and glorious things in the name of Jesus. And nobody has the right to take that from us. So we forgive them and we move on and we become a part of what God is doing in the local church. Nobody deserves to take that from us. I don't care how messed up this thing is. I don't care how messed up Mill Creek Foursquare is or whatever church you go to. It doesn't matter how messed up it is. God will work among us, among broken people, to do great things if we can just simply learn how to be like Jesus and forgive one another. I don't lack sympathy, but I want to focus more on what Jesus gives than I do and what somebody's trying to take away. And that's true for all of us. It's important that we get that down into our heart. So preach the gospel to everyone. Reach the whole world, all nations. Baptize people. Teach people to obey the words of Jesus and trust the person promises and the presence of Jesus while we're on mission with him. This, this is the mission of the church. This is what we're to be about. And I would tell you, and I, I would be honest with you by saying, yeah, I mean, a lot of times we're not doing what we should be doing. We're not focused on what we should be focusing on. We're not about the business that he gave us clearly in the Great Commission. And we need to make those adjustments. We need to make those changes. Sometimes the church becomes about potlucks and raffles. And it looks like a recreational center, more like the YMCA than it does like a power plant of God's presence. I I understand uh, the stigma. I get the... um, The criticism, I understand that, but we get to work together to see it change and become more vibrant than ever before. Our voice to this matters, but our voice alone is not the only voice that matters. Our voice together helps shape what this is to become what God wants it to be. If we become a criticizer on the outside, our voice will never matter. You've got to be a part of something in order for your voice to actually matter. And to the degree that you are a part of something, a family of people, to that degree, your voice will matter and help shape. It'll be a shaping tool for the very people of God that you're a part of. Being a part of a local church is non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. The Bible says all over the place, be hospitable to one another, love one another, serve one another. And we might try to do that in our own way and in our own sphere of circles and friendships and all of that. But ultimately, Paul is talking to a church in a specific location. He is saying something to a people that know each other, that walk together. And I believe it is in that context that Paul says those things to those people. And that is where it's meant to be experienced the most. 
And I think that whatever other people say today, it doesn't make sense. I have watched people walk away from the church. I have watched people say they'll do it on their own. And I have never one time in my whole life seen a person that has walked away from the institutional church to do life with God on their own. I have never seen that person become more fruitful, more effective, more evangelistic, more generous to the poor. I have never seen in my entire life one person that has walked away from what they think is wrong about the church to do life with God themselves and become more effective as a result of it. It has never happened. I have never seen it. And if you have, it's an anomaly to me. It doesn't happen. I find that when people walk away from the people of God, when they walk away, even from the broken mess that we are, even that, when they walk away from that, they become more selfish, more self-focused, more focused on the things of the world, doing life about themselves. That's what I see. That is what I have historically seen in my 18 years of walking with Jesus. I've watched people. I watch them. I'm a people observer. I take notes, y'all. I don't want to be right or wrong. I just want to observe. What's the truth? I've watched people do it. And you know what? They just get mad and they want to go play ball on the other side of town. But you can't leave your team. You can't leave your team. And I guarantee there's levels of disobedience in us. You know, if we would be good at looking in the mirror, we would be less critical of everyone else. Come on, somebody. Who's lived on Critical Avenue for a lot of their life? You know what I'm saying? This is how the church should be. This is what Pastor So-and-so should do. This is what they, see, if we could look in the mirror more often, we would be a lot more gracious and a lot more compassionate. I mean, some of us in our hearts, we're a little sensitive, okay? And I'm not putting you down. Some of us are a little sensitive. We get our toes stepped on pretty quickly. If so-and-so didn't look at me when they walked by me, and I'm going to leave the church now. I mean, sometimes that stuff happens to people. But I would tell you, when you and I get our own discipleship that we are responsible for, when we get that into our own grasp and we take ownership of that, things begin to change. I just refuse to be a victim, and I want to give, my, my, give you my perspective tonight. You're not a victim. Don't be a victim. God has more for you than that. People are going to mess with you. People are going to offend you. And I'll tell you, it's weird to walk around with a fence I mean, it, it, for a Christian. It, it's, it's, just, it's just abnormal. It shouldn't even happen. Like, we should, yes, we will get offended. I'm not saying you won't get offended. But when you get offended, we've already been given the antidote, the answer. We already have what we need to deal with that very thing that's just happened to us. So it might hurt. It might sting. All of that might happen. Trials, tribulations, difficulties happen to us. But we know what to do when they happen is what I'm trying to say. I'm not going to, you understand, I'm not going to coddle you tonight, right? I'm not going to say, are you comfortable? Can I get you a pillow? <laughs> a little bit of hairspray? I'm not, what do you need? You know, I'll, I'll help you. I want to give you the truth. Because I think it's the truth that sets us free. It's the truth that sets us up to do what we're called to do. And for too long, many people have just sat around doing nothing with their salvation and their life in the Lord. And it's always about what somebody's done to them. I, I get it. it. It's painful. But you can. You can. You can overcome. You can. That's the, that's the word for some. I don't know why. This is the word for somebody. Online, I don't, I'm not even sure who's watching me right now. But you can overcome. We can overcome. We are the people of God. Saved, set free, delivered, filled with the Holy Spirit. We are the church. We are the people of God. The Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against us. I don't just want to be a building that makes it inconvenient for the people at Walmart on a Sunday morning. I want the community to know that if they come here for prayer, something's going to change. I want the community to know that if they're in need, they know where to go. They're not going to go to the government. They're going to go here. I want the community to know that there is a people that will actually accept and love you right where you are. And no, we won't let you stay where you are, but we will be gracious in your process. And by the way, the world isn't good at doing that either. So when people blame the church and say they're hateful and bigots and unloving and blah, 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 the world is that way. And that's not what you experience when you're going to come here. It's not. And I want that to be our purification so that we become that very thing. That's why we have to speak straight to one another. Am I talking to you tonight? I hope I am. I, I'm not saying everything I've said is perfect, but there's some good stuff in there somewhere. You know what I'm saying, Cameron? There's some good stuff in there for you. You can put it in your back pocket and remember it tomorrow. 
take it with you on the road. You know, there's a little, there's a little lunch sack, a little doggy bag even that you could take with you. There's enough to share. You know, you can use that tomorrow too. I'm just having fun. Let me have fun with you. So good. Last thing I want to talk to you about and then we'll close. And I'll let you ask questions if you want to. The gathering of the church in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 it, the writer of Hebrews is talking about a time where the people of God were waning, not only in their coming together, their gathering together, but also in their convictions in the Lord, in their convictions about Jesus and his, his sacrifice for them. And this is what he says, and let us come uh, consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, coming together as the church of God, as some are in the habit of, of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching, we're talking about the second coming of Christ, the day, the great and glorious day of the Lord. Let us encourage one another as we see that day. That day is approaching, ladies and gentlemen. This was a day of persecution. They were living in a difficult time. Some were losing their homes. Some were losing their jobs. If they were found to be a Christian in that day, sometimes they would lose their job. They would lose their land. They would some, at times rent, some would own, even in those days, and they would lose their position. They would lose their position in society by being a Christian. A person of the way is what they called them. They're a person of the way. They're a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. They were living in a difficult time. And in that time, the writer of Hebrews chose to say these words. Do not give up on gathering together as some are in the habit of doing. Some people have a habit. And that habit is to not prioritize the gathering of the Lord. And I would say to you that we need to come out of that. It's a bondage. It's a bondage for the gathering of God's church to be a burden to us. It is a lie from hell and it is a bondage to us. I'm telling you the truth this evening. It is a bondage to not want to be a part of this, to not want to come together. Now, in the old days, they would say whenever the church doors, which we're talking about the building, and that's not necessarily the definition of the church, which I've already said. When the church doors are open, you're there. I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying that, like, you need to be in every group. I'm just saying when we gather together, it's so important that we have a covenant community one to another. It's important. For seven years, I think we have done this thing in our church called Dedicate. It's a 21-day fast. January 1st to the 21st. We're doing it again if you're part of our church or if you notice that there's a video that I post or some things. And I, I wrote a little outline of fasting and dedicating the first 21 days of the year to the Lord. It's what they've done in times past and it's what we're doing. We're saying, Lord, this year is yours. 2017 is yours. We're dedicating it to you. We're not proving anything to you. We're just saying that we will put aside some of the excess that has tumbled into our 2016. So come on, somebody. You picked up a habit in 2016 you need to let go of. Now that habit has you when you once had it. And you need to let go of that. You set aside some of the excess, some of the overage. You let the tree get pruned, the tree of your life, so that you can be more fruitful for the glory of God. We're dedicating 2017 to the Lord in whatever way he calls you to fast. I've been doing that for years. We've been doing that for years. And I asked the people at our church, I intentionally do it. I go, what are you doing for the fast? And a, a person after person, well, oh, I'm not really sure. And sometimes what they mean is they're not going to do it. And here's what I would say. I could tell you right there, it's like we need a new understanding of covenant community. When your leaders call you to fast, it's not, it shouldn't be negotiable. It should be, should be something you want to do. You're not an individual anymore. You're a part of this. We're not consumers where we get what we want out of this and then the parts that we don't really like, that's the part that our flesh doesn't like. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And if our leaders are calling us to something, to rally around the purposes of God, we should say yes. We shouldn't be like, I'm not, that's really cool that Ben is doing that. That's really cool that Pastor Chris is gonna do that. He lives in a godly home, that's really great. No, this is us. This is us. Where we talk about from the stage what the church is doing. I've seen it for a long time. I'm, I'm talking about real stuff. This might not be you, but I'm just talking about real stuff for a moment. Like, we'll say, hey, this is what our church is doing. You know, this is our, what our church is doing. We've given like every year at the end of the year, Mill Creek Foursquare, we, we take our special offering. Basically, all of December, all the money that comes in for December we take that money and we give it to all these various ministries to see impact in our community. 
That's what we want. We want to partner with these ministries to see impact in our young people, in the society, in the community. And we do that. And it's amazing how some people will be like, yeah, you know, we do a celebration Sunday and people get really excited that I've never given a dollar. Because they're not a part of this with their money. They're, they're a part of it in theory because they attend it, but they're not a part of it in, to enjoy and to celebrate the very thing that we're doing as a people together. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's, it's, it's theoretical. Your participation is not authentic. It's not real. And, and, and I might be calling somebody out here, but I'm just saying it's amazing how we can celebrate something that we actually don't even give to ourselves. Because when the call was made, we didn't even consider it. We didn't even, that's cool that they're doing, oh man, that's so cool that I'm a part of a church that would do that. You're, you are a part of a church that would do that, and you can do that too. You're supposed to be in this. You see how individualism has sucked that out of us so that we sit on the sidelines and wonder why people aren't paying attention to me or they're not doing what I think they should do. Or, and the idea is, is that if they did it the right way, then I would jump in. No, 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 that's not the way it works. You jump into the brokenness. That's what Jesus did. Jesus didn't wait for everything to get figured out. He saw us in our sin and he came down in the midst of it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And I think if we are even right in our criticisms, if there's any of us in here and we've criticized and we're right in our criticism, then do like Jesus did. Jump into the brokenness and get involved rather than jump out of. It, it, is, it, is, it is a reflection of our immaturity to jump out of it or our wounding or whatever it is. But Jesus can heal that and he can bring us back because our voice matters. We're the body of Christ. Together we are better. That's what the Bible tells us. I'm going long. Is this, you guys blinking? What? <laughs> yeah. I don't know where I was at with the doctrine of the church, but why we gather. We gather to meet with Jesus. We gather to worship God together. We gather to be equipped. We gather to share spiritual gifts one to another and strengthen the body of Christ is what the scriptures tell us. We gather to pray together. And we gather to receive communion together. We have a common union in Christ. Communion. Something we do together. We live in a time and a part of the world where the church is not necessarily thought of well. And I understand there are definitely wounds that leaders, um, the transgression of some is real. I'm not taking that away. I'm not saying that they should continue to be leaders. But we should not be the wounded as a result of it because we are the church. And if somebody does something that they shouldn't do, then that needs to be dealt with, but it shouldn't change our disposition and it shouldn't change our theology and it shouldn't change our experience. We just have to insert ourselves in different ways in a different place. And for some, that's more than others. For some, that's harder than others. I get it. But I don't want the culture to tell us that this isn't important. And I don't want even the, the temperature of the individualistic Christian ideology that we see at times where we can get out of things instead of getting into them. I, I really do think it's a supernatural work of God's grace to, to make this become a ble the blessing that it is in our mind and not a burden, but this to be a blessing. It's hard for you in some ways, and it's also hard for me, but don't think your neighbor doesn't experience any hardships either. Don't think that. You're not alone. We're not alone. We're all broken. We're all being restored we all participate in this together. We all have life experience. We all have got something to share. We all can carry one another's burdens, whether the issues are of our past or the issues are of race or the, whatever the issues are, we come together and we carry one another's burdens together. And as the church, we're equipped and strengthened and empowered to go out and tell other people that they have a place in God's kingdom and they can experience some of that on the earth not just someday in heaven. Because we trust the people of God that we walk with and we want people to come. I never, I never would tell you that we should go and invite people to church to get more bottoms in the seats. It's just a ludicrous idea to me. I would never go door knocking to get more people in, 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 the, in the building to feel like that's success. That's not success. I'm looking for a family of people that know who their father is, that know who Jesus Christ is, that know who the people of God are, 
that feel safe where their children can be here and get raised up in the Lord because that's what they're doing. They're parenting their children. Where people can come and experience the presence of God and get healed and set free. And I mean, I want this to be a place where the people of God gather together because the church is the people as we gather together that people come here and they're not just a number, you know? And we need one another to do that. We can't expect other people, when the church gets it together and, and they start doing this thing or that thing, nah, we gotta do this together. It takes everybody. As a pastor, I could tell you how many ideas I get from others. Hey, this is what we should do. And I look at them and I go, sounds like a great idea that God's given you. You're not a member, you're an owner. There's a difference. Members, you can be members to a club. You can come when you want. You can do what you want. It's like going to a restaurant. You know, you get what you pay for, right? And if the service was bad, you never come back. But this is a potluck. Everybody's got something to share. You don't come to a potluck not bringing anything. That's a bad day. And you don't come to a potluck to criticize everybody else's dishes when you don't have one on the table. You just don't do that. These guys really like that illustration. That's really good. But it doesn't really make sense. You, your criticisms just die real quickly. I mean, you might have them while you walk out. That's fair. I mean, we all <laughs> struggle with them. But the truth is, is that the church is not a restaurant. It's a potluck. We, we gather together. We give something. We have something. And, and, that's, and that's, where we, that's where we stand. I guess the reason I'm hitting criticism so hard is because it's a reality, not necessarily of your life, but it's a reality of your life.